Robert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. America as a country was hobbled together nearly 250 years ago. Of course, the landmass that it sits on was not created by humans, but the contract which more or less still holds us together, and I mean more or less, uh, was a product of 18th century humans. Their ideas did not occur spontaneously, but evolved over a span of about 500 years since the Magna Carta. Cultures carved from rock, such as Stonehenge and the sculptures of Michelangelo, seem to outlast time, but not a lot of other creations of humans last forever. Even great art, if not properly maintained and cared for, crumbles eventually. The key to preservation is care. In preserving great ancient art, sometimes new technology must be applied. Uh, And if left on its own, the creations just won't last. And what of democracy? America's founders were indeed brilliant and had amazing foresight, and much of it does remain in service to the 21st century people of America. But certainly the America of 1776 is a far cry from our America of 2018. Can the institution of democracy survive? Can we today be careful enough to fix what might need fixing and not accidentally or even intentionally destroy what we are determined to conserve? And there are, are there actual technical fixes which could have spared us from a Trump presidency without endangering our electoral system? Well, there's a lot to it. And our guest today writes that our 18th century electoral system is outdated. It was never designed to serve a society as large and diverse as ours. The founders spoke clearly about the need for future generations to update the system. The reason we don't is because most Americans have no idea what's wrong or how to fix it, end of quote. I actually wonder how many Americans are even aware of the malfunction of democracy that we're seeing these days. And that's where Lisa Elaine Scott's work comes in. The project we're going to talk about today is something she calls Outdated Democracy, a 21st Century Civics Lesson. Lisa, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you so much for having me, Bert, and thank you for doing such a wonderful podcast, a place where we can come and talk about all things democracy. I really appreciate it. 
Well, we're all doing our part. There's no I in team, as they say. I know that a, <laughs> a great number of people wonder why U.S. public policy rarely, if ever, reflects the views and values of most Americans. There's a disconnect from what we were taught in school about the greatness of our Republican system, small r of government, leaving so many in the 21st century wondering how it is that a democracy has allowed so few to control so much. Lisa Scott argues that a good bit of the answer is that the U.S. has an 18th century electoral system that was never designed to serve a society as large and diverse as ours, and in fact, it can't. It can only continue to fail. That's pretty scary. Now I know I'm a, a politics and history geek, and then not everybody is as into it as I am, or as Lisa is, but it's a really lousy feeling spread across all America that somehow this government is just not serving us. A lot of people recognize that. It's a, it's a sort of grumbling that's widespread. This frustration can and has been manipulated to actually make things worse in terms of representative democracy. That's for sure. Another effect of this is that more and more Americans just give up. They surrender, believing that we are indeed powerless, and we are not powerless. What can we do to take back democracy? Well, we're going to talk about that today. That's where she comes in. As a former high school civics teacher, Lisa is well aware that we teach a lot of myths and that critical thinking when it comes to history and government is rarely, if ever, encouraged. She has an impressive biography, and I'm going to go through it just a little bit. Lisa Elaine Scott is a writer, a teacher, filmmaker, and Lifelong human rights activist, she received an undergrad degree in secondary education from the University of Maryland and an MA in conflict resolution and peace building from California State University. She's working on an MFA in screenwriting at Mount uh, St. Mount Mary's University. After directing documentaries about poverty in America and California's three strikes law, Lisa decided to examine the U.S. electoral system, believing that the ballot box is the best pathway to empowerment. She wondered why so few Americans bother to vote. And this question led to the documentary film project, Outdated Democracy, a 21st Century Civics Lesson. Over the past four years, she's spoken with many experts, voters, and non-voters to answer this question. Her research has led to the conclusion that barriers to meaningful representation, the electoral college, gerrymandering, winner-take-all vote allocation, and the two-party duopoly are major deterrents to civic participation. And in conjunction with the film, she uh, gives presentations designed to explore the barriers to meaningful representation and explain how we can update our outdated electoral system so that it works for everyone. And Lisa Elaine Scott is on the board of Best Democracy Colorado and a member of the Fair Chance Project LA and the founder of Futurist Films. Well, again, thanks for being with us. I know that was a long introduction. What is outdated democracy? What are its goals and methods? How did it come about? What made you decide to make it happen? There's a whole bunch of questions in there, and just answer it as you see fit. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's the project, it, it started out, uh, I started out with the idea to make, you know, your classic two-hour feature-length documentary film that I would take to festivals and, you know, do screenings. And it's really morphed from that into more of what I call a project, a documentary project. It's going to be ongoing because clearly the issues with our democracy, the 
changes that we need to make, um, these are very fluid. And so things are changing constantly. And so what I've decided to do along with my team is to make uh, segments about issues with our uh, democratic system, with our electoral system, and just release those one at a time so that I can make changes. I need to continue to talk with uh, various experts, and I want to, you know, I'm going to be doing some traveling after the first of the year to talk to voters in different areas. So this is going to be an ongoing film project. Um, As you mentioned, I also do live presentations, which is very interesting for me. So the goal of the project is basically to educate. I don't have, um, you know, it's it's nonpartisan. I consider myself and, and identify as an independent. Um, <clears throat> I prefer to see multi, a multi-party government. Uh, you know, I I don't believe that the when you look at the diversity of the United States of America, to believe that we are a two-party society is just ridiculous, but yet we have a two-party government. So that itself uh, really raises some questions. Um, so I'm not, you know, I I am in favor of a multi-party government, and again, I'm an independent. So I'll talk to anybody, and I'll get opinions and views from everyone, and I just want to educate people because, as you mentioned, I'm aware of how government is taught in schools. Um, I'm aware that there are myths that continue to be perpetuated. And this is, if we don't educate correctly, the changes that we need are not going to come about. I mean, you can't know that you need to change something when you don't understand what's wrong with it. True. And you have to eventually come up with the... you know, some sort of a, a solution, which is, uh, you know, you got to diagnose the problem and really understand that and then uh, come up with a solution that might actually work. Now, with regard to the duopoly idea, I will confess I'm a lifelong Democrat, but I am not the Hillary Clinton. To me, the, the Clinton brand uh, was not traditional Democrat. It was pretty much the same as, you know, it was like Republican light. Uh, just serving the corporate interests, which have no real, you know, caring and respect for actual democracy and serving the public. They just want to serve the people that give them money. I was a strong supporter in 2016 of Bernie Sanders. I was a delegate. Had the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, not rigged the nominating process, I have no doubt he would be president today. I never say that generally, but to me, I just have no question. After he was denied the nomination... And this gets to your point about multi-party. Many disgruntled liberals, you know, traditional Democrats, became what they call Dem Exiters, uh, like uh, you know, Brit. Uh, what was it uh, Brexit? Leaving Britain, leaving the uh, European Union. They figured, well, the Democratic Party uh, is is no good. Uh, I give up. They're not going to become you know what they used to be. They've they've changed, and that their identity is what it is. But to me, I think. Leaving the Democratic Party is a mistake. I, I haven't lost all faith in the duopoly system here. The party of the Clintons is not the traditional Democratic Party. The DNC became another servant of the corporate class, as the Republicans have done for so long. They were sort of me-tooing it. I still see those who demanded an instant solution to corporate 
plutocratic rule by going for a third party is highly unrealistic. Third parties are always a gift to the Republicans. It seems to me that we traditional Democrats need to stay and fight to regain our identity as dependable defenders of the middle and working classes. Many countries in the Western world do have multiple parties, and I, I think that's really great. I, I, it's, it's always fun to see. So it, it, given what's happened to the Democratic Party, that we used to have two different parties, really different parties, that do change over time. I mean, it was the Democratic Party in the uh, uh, 19th century and early 20th century that was all in favor of uh, racism and segregation, but they're not anymore. Why we need a, a multi-party system? Okay. Well, there's a lot to unpack here. First of all, your, your comment about third parties, alternative parties, is, is quite astute, okay? There, there are no viable third parties in this country. That's an impossibility with the system that we have. This is one of the you know, barriers that I speak of is the winner-take-all vote allocation. This is what results in the spoiler effect. When Bernie Sanders first um, uh, decided to run, there was a rally here in Los Angeles, and I went out and I interviewed a lot of his supporters and asked them, would you, now this was very early on in the process, and I asked them, <clears throat> would you want Bernie Sanders to run as an independent if he does not get the Democratic nomination? And overwhelmingly, yeah. the majority of people said, of course not, because he can't win as an independent, we, and we need, you know, we need to get a Democrat into office. That was the belief of the people I spoke with. So those are very savvy voters. They're, you know, they understand how the system works. Unfortunately, a lot of Americans don't. Um, you know, winner-take-all is what we call plurality voting. So the winner does not have to receive a majority of votes, only the most votes. Okay, so that's the difference. Yes. You receive the most votes or a majority well, in, in our presidential elections, we only require a plurality, the most votes, which means that a third party, a fourth, fifth, right. sixth candidate will just split the vote down, and then the person who receives the most votes will win, right. and oftentimes that's going to be the candidate that the majority of people want the least. Yes, okay? absolutely. More people have voted for someone else than the candidate who will win. Right. Well, that's, you know, that's not democratic. So, um, you know, we, we, we can't really have a viable third party in this country until we rectify that, until we require the, per the candidate to receive a majority of votes before they become president. A majority. Well, that's... There are a lot of uh, uh, exceptions, you know, people, as you say, who have become president without winning majority. Here, you know, where this show is coming from, New Hampshire, we have the famous or infamous New Hampshire presidential primary. And very often, uh, like 60-some percent of the people vote for somebody other than the person who becomes the winner. Jimmy Carter got 20, exactly. 27 percent in 76. You know, they, right. the, the liberals divided up. So, right. So, well, right. Well, it's happened. I believe it's. I believe fifteen presidents were elected without a majority of the vote. Wow. Uh, I think hmm. that's right. Um, so you know, it, it it happens, and so that's why 
third parties are not viable. And that's why all of those Bernie Sanders supporters were smart enough to say, you know, I, I really don't want to divide the vote. So we, we have to change that. And then there was another point um, that, I, that I wanted to make, uh, and I, I can't remember now what it was. Maybe it'll come back to me. Well, probably. If you just tuned in, Bert, yeah. Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and again, it's a heavy lift. We all got to participate in it. Our guest today is Lisa Elaine Scott, uh, former social studies teacher, and I got to tell you, I really value social studies teachers. They never get paid according to what they're worth. You know, they know about going through myths and teaching people, young people, critical thinking, which is a, a really good thing. And we're talking right now about third parties. Uh, you know, it, it just, it hasn't happened particularly. I've talked to, it's interesting. I actually thought you would say that a lot of the Bernie supporters said, yes, he would have said, yes, he should run as an independent. There's still a move to do that now, uh, coming up to 2020. I don't think that's going to happen. He, I mean, can, can't we have two really distinct parties? One, you know, the Republican Party See, the, as I'm asking the question, I'm thinking, well, not really, because it changes over time. The Republican Party used to be against segregation and against racism, and the Democratic Party was for segregation and for racism back before 1964. So the parties do change. They're not, they're not uh, stuck in glue. But, I, I mean, I've seen other countries, as I say, I was uh, quite a while ago in... Uh, in Norway, where they had nine significant parties all, all out there rallying in a public square. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. That's far more democratic. What? How can we, without, you know, having a third party that helps elect the guy we like least, and I'm assuming it's a guy, uh, how can we enable uh, more than a duopoly, more than a two-party system? You have some thoughts about that, I'm sure. Well, it's simple. I mean, there is only one way, and it's as I already mentioned, we would need to get rid of the winner-take-all and say the person who wins the presidential election must be the candidate who received the majority of the vote, period. That's the only way oh. it's going to enable third parties to run and be viable. And let me just, I, I remember now the point I wanted to make, something you, you reminded me of. You know, when you talk that the Democratic Party that you talk about, that you, um, mm. you know, historically that I grew up in, and, and I do vote Democratic by, by and large. I sure. mean, that's the only game in town yeah. if you lean towards the left. But remember the Democratic Party that you're referring to, it was a big tent. I mean, that was the idea. So you had this Republican Party that was rather narrow. Yeah. You know, it was always characterized as being for the the rich, generally speaking, the white, you know, um, male people who wanted low taxes, conservatives, uh, fiscal conservatives. Okay, Republicans. And then everyone else was supposed to fit under the Democratic tent. Well, that's what's breaking down. That That isn't tenable. You know, I, I so I went under that tent for many years, and I'm standing over in the corner of the tent mm. with one foot out the door. Mm. as are many others. Yes. So the whole, to me, common sense says that the whole notion of this big tent to serve the whole rest of the country that doesn't identify as a Republican, that's, that's a, a setup for failure, at which we can see it really is failing. Um, 
So that's my answer to the Democratic Party. I'm not a fan. I I might become a fan. If we could have multiple parties, there would be a, a more diversity of ideas and parties would have to actually discuss and debate each other over Whoa. ideas. Whoa. And then I could choose accordingly. How radical. <laughs> actually voting on ideas. And I do think... Uh, one of the big problems, I think I, I stand alone on this one, is that, you know, celebrity is such a big deal now. If we could have one head of state, like, you know, somebody just to, to represent the mood of the people, what we think we look like, etc., and, you know, who could be a star, a head of state, but the head of government, who doesn't have to be a star, but who you know, knows what he or she is talking about and knows how to run government that serves people. But that I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime. Right. I'm not sure about proportional right. representation either. I mean, and I, my memory may be wrong. Early on in the Clinton presidency, there was a woman who came out for uh, 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 proportional representation. Was it Lanny Guineer? Am I right on that? Yeah, sure. All right. Sure. Memory works in every now and then. My goodness. Right, right. <laughs> right. She was crushed right. for doing so. Uh, right. I, I really, really, really like the idea of proportional representation. Then you could have all different parties participating. I mean, most governments in the Western world have some sort of a, a, a coalition government. Uh, I, right. I think that's... Well, go ahead. I, and, you know, none of these things require a change in the Constitution. I mean, I, that's, <clears throat> I'm looking at it from that standpoint. I am not, I do uh -huh. not advocate, you know, ripping up our Constitution as usually when I talk about um, proportional representation, the first thing I get is, oh, so you want a, a British-style parliamentary government? And I say, no, of course not. I mean, where did that come from? So it, it doesn't require that we do that to be able to elect a multi-party government. Um, but, you know, it just requires changing districts, right? Having three-seat uh, districts as opposed to single-seat districts. I mean, this is not, you know, this is not anything radical. Um, it just, and, and the, the information is there, the knowledge is there, we know how to do it. The problem is, the reason there's no forward movement on electoral reform is because the two parties love the duopoly. Mm -hmm. They want to keep it that way, and any of these things I'm talking about will put a, a chink in that two-party duopoly. Hmm. So that's your answer, you know, as to why we're not moving forward on on these reforms. Yeah, and I think that's clearly true. It frustrates the heck out of me as a, as a lifelong Democrat that, gosh, so often it seems that the power elite, obviously within the Republican Party, but frankly, obviously within the Democratic Party, it's about holding on to power. And I have right. friends who are very high in the Democratic Party who will tell me off the record uh, that, yeah, it is. And they get frustrated as heck as they don't want to make change. They, I mean, a lot of money is involved. These lobbyists, you know, there's, there's uh, revolving doors between the lobbies and the, and the DNC and I'm sure the RNC. It's about power and money. And <sighs> that is frustrating. I mean, sure. I, I don't think we're being naive in saying we like a democracy. You know, it, it, it has worked right. to, to, to some extent. So what well, else? Go ahead. Well, I, I just so I just thought this was a, a good time to talk a little bit more about 
having more democracy and why I'm in favor of more democracy, certainly not less, and why it's important to recognize, number one, that we have one of the least representative governments in the the world and, and that our democracy has many undemocratic features. These are all just outdated. You know, that's that's the reason. And that we do have the power to update our democracy. Well, I, I was just going on a bit about low voter turnout and why that's such a problem for, for citizens. It's certainly not a problem for the uh, ruling elite. Yeah, they don't care. But, um, yeah, no, in fact, they, they want that. Absolutely. I'm going to get to that in a minute. But, you know, as I was saying, we have one of the lowest voter turnouts in the in the world of the, you know, of all the democracies. We have one of the least representative governments. And this is why people aren't voting. You know, I'm a big advocate for, I mean, this is very unpopular. Uh, and I've had, you know, I've received many a, a, a strange stare when I say this. <laughs> but I, I'm not, you know, I'm not... I don't point my fingers at the non-voter and, and name call. You know, you're lazy, you're, right. you're apathetic, you're, you're disinterested, you're, you know, I've heard all kinds of things. The non-voter, and, and of course that old saying, uh, if you don't vote, you right. don't have the right to complain. I say, if you don't vote, you probably have more right to complain than anyone. Ah, because you're being asked to participate in an in a electoral system that does not work for you. It does not offer you a pathway to meaningful representation. So why then, you know, common sense tells you that if you have a flat tire or your kid's sick or you're tired or you have to work, that you're just going to skip the voting booth that day. Okay. So we need to, that's why we need to update our democracy so that it it starts to work for everyone. So let me, I'd like to tell you a little bit about something called the Plutonomy Memo. I was going to get there. Go ahead. Okay. Which very few people that I talk to happen to know about. Um, So the Plutonomy Memos, there were three of them. They were written between 2005 and 2006 by a team of analysts. Uh, They published these three memos for Citigroup's ultra-wealthy clients, Okay. Uh, Basically, the purpose of the memos was to advise these very wealthy investors on how to keep their wealth. So the definition of a plutonomy is an economy where economic growth is powered by and largely consumed by the wealthy few. So basically, the premise is that what you and I do as consumers has no impact on the economy. Right. so much wealth is concentrated that the only consumers who affect the economy are the wealthy. A plutonomy is the result of a capitalist-friendly government and tax regimes, and currently the three recognized plutonomies are the U.S., the U.K., and Canada. And that's, you know, we'll come back to that in a minute, but those are the three major plutonomies. Um, So, it's really interesting that the three memos were released. You can find them online, although I know that they were taken off pretty quickly after they first surfaced. So if you want, you know, if your listeners want to uh, search for the Plutonomy memos, um, I'm not sure what will come up now, but I, I think at least one of them will come up. And it's very interesting reading. But 
I'm not going to get into the weeds of the memos. I just want to point out one very particular thing. Uh, so, you know, throughout the memos, the analysts go on and on explaining the best way to hold on to wealth. And then in Memo 2, which is dated March 5th, 2006, on page 10, there's a real small, a tiny little section titled, Risks. What could go wrong? And so the, the, the one thing, and this is, this is the takeaway. So the analysts write to these wealthy investors, while the rich are getting a greater share of the wealth and, they po- and the poor a lesser share, political enfranchisement remains as was, one person one vote. At some point, it is likely that labor will fight back against the rising profit share of the rich, and there will be a political backlash against the rising wealth of the rich. So there you have it. That really, when I read that, um, you know, some years ago now, that really validated what I was trying to do, because I've long believed, and I still believe, that the antidote capitalism run amok, and I'm sure there, you know, your listeners are on the spectrum of that. I'm, you know, I'm not oh, yeah. saying no capitalism, right. but capitalism run amok, the antidote is democracy. Because here they are telling these, these wealthy, I mean, ultra-wealthy investors, eh, you know, you don't have much to worry about. However, if, if the rank and file, if the masses ever truly understand what they do have equal to you is their vote, eh, you could be in a little bit of trouble. Yeah. So, it, you see, so it's, it's, it's highly important that the dominant culture here, the, the power elite, keep us from voting, yes. keep the electoral system from being democratic. Yes. We do not have one person, one vote in this country. And, and that's what we should aspire to. That's the goal, is that we update our democracy, our electoral system, to adhere to the fundamental democratic principle of one person, one vote. And when we do that, we can then check capitalism. But until then, uh, you know, I, I hate to be, you know, a, a downer about this, but I'm, I'm not sure there's much hope if we, if we don't have one person, one vote. Fascinating. I, I'm a, although I'm critical of some policies of Franklin Roosevelt, uh, he recognized that he kind of saved capitalism from itself. And he recognized that to have a strong economy, what you need to do is build demand, not supply, but demand. Uh, and that recognized the one person, one vote, and that there was actual democracy. Nowadays, of course, I think if most people, I, and I, it saddens me to say, but I think most people feel like, no, nah, there's nothing I can do. I don't have any power. My vote doesn't count. And that's exactly what the plutocrats want you to believe. And they've been amazingly successful in convincing people our vote doesn't matter. You know, it's all but, run by them. And they're right. But in, right. in many cases, it does not. I mean, that's the reality. And so, so it's not just, I mean, it's, it's really multi-pronged. You know, yes, they need to convince us and they need, and, and I, you know, this whole idea that they turned us against each other. In other words, if I, if I need a non-voter, 
right? I'm supposed to point my fingers and say, my God, how dare you not yeah, right, vote? Right, right. In, instead of saying, well, why, why don't you vote? And what would you like, you know, how would you like the system to be? What would make you... I mean, if I had a product that I was trying to sell you, and I said, well, 50, 60, 70% of the people who have tried it have rejected using it, like, would, should I keep trying to sell it to you? Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> But so they, they turned us against each other, and then they recognize that the system is undemocratic, and, and so they don't want these electoral forms that I'm, reforms that I'm speaking about, because then we will get closer to and possibly achieve a true one-person, one-vote democracy, which, you know, we're, we're pretty far from now. I mean, and, and we've never had it, just to be clear. Right. I mean, the electoral college... Uh, on its face, is as undemocratic as it gets. Well, let's, um, yeah, let's talk about the Electoral College. And my sense is, you know, if it was stim- simply a popular vote and, and the president was elected simply by who got the most votes across all 50 states, places like New York and California would have a heck of a lot more political say than places like Kansas or Nebraska. Maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. Alabama. Uh-huh. But but the Electoral College, you pointed out something that I certainly uh, never knew about the Electoral College having some sort of a, uh, a, a basis in pro-slavery? Oh, well, sure. That's, it's, uh, let me, I'll get to that in a minute. Oh, sure. But I, I want to start with what your, your first premise there, because as I've been talking to people now for, uh, I don't know, years, I guess, about the Electoral College, one thing has become clear. The number one reason, okay, that people say they want to keep it, for, and, and it's it's still a minority, even though um, I will I will say, I'm, I'm unhappy to report this, but after the two, 2016 election, for the first time in 45 years, the number of people saying they wanted to keep the Electoral College uh, went above 50% for the first time in, in just decades. Wow. So that's telling you that people are starting to figure out, hey, we can win an election with a minority vote if we just keep the Electoral College. And, and let's be honest, the last yeah. two Republican presidents were elected with less than a majority, less, you know, with, sure. with fewer popular votes. They right. won only because of the Electoral College. Right. So for the foreseeable future, since a majority of the voting public does lean left, for the, you know, for the foreseeable future, that the Electoral College is the only pathway for Republicans to the White House, and they know that. So, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm kind of getting tangential oh, no, not here. At all. So, so um, the, as I said, the number one reason that I've heard for keeping the Electoral College is that the president will then be chosen, if we get rid of it, the president will be chosen by people who live in just a few major cities. Now, here's the reality. So I've done a lot of number crunching over the years, and and really, I have to admit, I'm confused by how um, little Americans seem to understand about our demography. Now, maybe it's because we're such a big country. I'll... You know, I'll give them that. Maybe that's the reason. Combined, the combined population of the top 10 U.S. cities is 
8% of the total U.S. population. Okay, oh, wow. The combined total is 25 million people. The total U.S. population is, you know, almost 327 million people. Most people, most Americans, do not live in the cities. Okay, they live in the suburbs. Hmm. Um, it, it's it's it breaks down to about 20 percent uh, live in what they would call rural places. I mean, the, I mean, demography is really interesting. Um, it's it's not. It's somewhat complicated, um, and I'm going to be interviewing some demographers in 2018 to include in the documentary project because this is such an important topic. But, but anyway, just keeping it really broad, it shapes out to be about 20% of Americans live in rural communities, 20% live in the cities, and the other 60% live in the suburbs. So... You know, whose vote shouldn't count? I mean, who is it that we're afraid of? Why wouldn't we just have one person, one vote? And it needs to be pointed out that when you, you know, let's look at Los Angeles, 4 million people. Okay. They're not all Democrats. Okay. So the notion that, oh my gosh, we don't want the, the citizens of, you know, that that terrible, you know, scary Liberal. place, Los Angeles, to, right. to be the ones to decide who the president is. Well, that that's assuming that all four million of us are Democrats. Well, we're not. There's quite a few Republicans here. Sure. And at this point in time, with the system that we use, their vote doesn't count. So I've talked to Republicans here who said, I would love to have one person, one vote, because then my Republican vote would actually combine with all the Republican votes in the country, and we would get, you know, it would actually count. So hmm. there you have it. That's my little my little spiel on uh, demography and the fact that it, it's a myth, okay, that the big, you know, scary right. cities have all the people in it and they're going to decide from now on. It's it's actually if you want to be scared of anyone, it's it's the suburbanites, and I would argue yeah. that some of them probably are pretty scary. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, but that's that. That that's interesting. That uh, you know, as I mean, somebody who's really interested in history, myth virtually always replaces history. But you know, real history is better to understand than believing myth, which isn't necessarily true. And you just knock down a myth pretty clearly. And I want to go back to the uh, uh, pro-slavery yeah. basis yeah. of the electoral college. That's that's completely yeah. new to me. Okay. So let me, I can, I can do that really quickly and succinctly and clearly, I hope, because I've been doing it for a while. Good. The first thing I want to recommend to your listeners is that they pick up a copy of the records of the Federal Convention of 1787. Now, they actually don't need to pick it up. They can read it online for free. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, there are three volumes. It's, it's, you know, quite dense, but, you know, it's... Uh, if you're having trouble sleeping, it's probably a good thing to, to go to bed with. Um, but I, it's got all the records. It is the primary source of the conversations that were held during the Federal Convention where they wrote the Constitution. Okay, so many, many myths can be dispelled with this book. So here's the story on the Electoral College. They had been, you know, discussing for, for days 
how to elect the president. It was really the, the toughest um, question that they faced, and they put it off till the end. Uh, you know, they, they really grappled with it. So there were all kinds of uh, suggestions. We should have the governors elect the president. We should have, you know, the, the Congress. Uh, back and forth, back and forth. Well, ultimately, they decide. And, and a majority of the um, delegates sort of weigh in and say, you know, it really should be, they, they refer to it as the people at large. Okay, so that means the popular vote, the people at large. The president is a national figure, and we should let the people at large vote for him. All right, so Madison agrees. James Madison, the father of the Constitution, he agrees. But then he says this, and I'll, I will read the quote directly from the, the book. Thursday, July 19th, 1787, Madison says, There was one difficulty, however, of a serious nature attending an immediate choice by the people. The right of suffrage was much more diffusive in the northern states than southern states, and the latter could have no influence in the election on the score of the Negroes. The substitution of electors obviated this difficulty and seemed, on the whole, to be liable to, to the fewest objections. Oh, my. So basically, you know, the, 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 the delegates from the southern states said, yeah, you know, the, the people at large are the fittest. That, that's what Madison says in another quote. He says, the people at large are the fittest. But, you know, then he goes on to talk about this. Um, but then the southern states said, yeah, but you know what? If you, if you eliminate our, uh, the slaves from our population, if it is just one person, one vote, we have a smaller population than the north. So we will never be able to elect a president. Uh -huh. So because they had already included the three-fifths clause, right. okay, remember, the president... Electing the president came last, so Congress had already been established, and, you know, the, the method whereby they would elect the Congress. So the three-fifths clause was already included. Slaves would be counted in the population. So through the Electoral College, they could connect the election of the president with the population, um, you know, because it's based on the number of um House representatives yes. that you have and the two senators. So let me just say that. Let me just say that so people are clear. Each state has a number of electors that equals the number of representatives they have in the House plus two senators. So, for example, California has 55 electors. So because that's the way we elect Congress based on population to connect that, through the presidency, through the Electoral College, that enabled the South to use, to get sort of a bonus, right, a population bonus by using their slave population. Now, the proof of that is that, the first, you know, four of the first five presidents came from Virginia. Had they not used an Electoral College, that probably would not have been the case. Mm. You know, Adams, Adams probably would have won, uh, in other words. And so, that's the reason we have the Electoral College. There is no other reason. And we don't need it anymore because, obviously, clearly, you know, slavery is no longer uh, an institution in this country. 
we have no large group that cannot vote. So we don't need the Electoral College. It's hmm. obsolete. Wow. Fascinating. Uh, if you just tuned in, it's very, very interesting stuff. I think, you know, it's history, but it's also the future. Bert Cohen here. We're on Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is Lisa Elaine Scott, who is uh, doing her part to keep democracy alive. That's for sure. She's got a program called Outdated Democracy, uh, which I believe is a film. So what? let's get to what can be done. I wonder how you're... You know, the ideas of doing away with the Electoral College, I think it's gaining strength as it goes on. And, you know, we can't just make these changes. I mean, my sense is that, you know, we have uh, gerrymandering and the fact, I believe, more Americans favor more liberal ideas than than the uh, right wing, uh, but the right wing has the power Um so what what can be done about this? Are people connecting with it? I, my sense is that a lot of people who tend to vote Republican are like, yeah, you know, democracy is a good thing, and it's there ain't much of it left. How, how what can we do to help make it happen? Tell us about you know how how your outdated democracy program is uh, moving forward. Okay, <clears throat> sure. Well, first of all, I, I want to start by saying that. Um, you know, we we currently have a system that allows for minority party rule. I mean, that's, you know, that's the reality. We are living now under minority party rule. And so, again, that's extremely undemocratic. Um, it serves the plutonomy, okay? It's, it's going back to that. It's, uh, you know, exactly what the wealthy need to maintain their wealth. And so how can we make our system more democratic? Well, one way is to eliminate the Electoral College. Yes. Now, there's two ways to do that. First, we can amend the U.S. Constitution, which is a heavy lift. Yes. Uh, it requires two-thirds of the House and Senate to approve the proposal and then send it to the states for a vote. Or a constitutional convention can be called by two-thirds of the legislatures of the states. So these are two of these... These two things are not likely to be happening anytime soon. What the National Popular Vote Plan yes. is the most uh, obvious and, and reasonable fix for the Electoral College. Okay, It basically would neutralize the Electoral College. It doesn't get rid of it. It doesn't change the Constitution. Here's how it works. It's an interstate compact, and it... Um, between the states. So it goes into effect when the number of states with a total electoral vote count of 270 signs the agreement. So remember, it takes 270 mm -hmm. votes to win the Electoral College. That's, yes. you know, a majority. Yep. So once the number of states that total 270 electoral votes sign the compact, it goes into effect. And what those states are agreeing to do Okay, this is the important part. When they sign the compact, they are agreeing to give all of their electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote. So that way, the, the effects of the Electoral College are neutralized. We know for, for certain that the winner of the popular vote is going to receive those 270 electoral votes, mm. and that's going to put you know, the person who, who won the popular vote into office. Hmm. Wow. 
<laughs> yeah. Interesting. So, so, and it's not that complicated. No, it's not. It's not. And and so I want to also recommend to your listeners that they, you know, visit the website, yes. uh, nationalpopularvote.com, and I've got another ebook for them to read. It's called Every Vote Equal. Now, this book is, let me see, I'm going to take, it's like over a thousand pages. Yeah, so basically. I'm not recommending you read it page, you know, from front to back. But it's really designed to answer every question that anybody could have about how this plan would work, uh, what the problems, you know, it, it dispels all the myths. So you can just sort of go through it and, and look for what you're interested in. So um, that is available online at nationalpopularvote.com. I believe it's .org as well. I believe either one will get you to it. Um, so let's. So where are we with this? I mean, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is that 10 states and Washington, D.C. have already signed the compact. They are Maryland, Massachusetts, Washington State, New Jersey, Illinois, New York, California, Rhode Island, Vermont, Hawaii, and Washington, D.C. Now, this totals 165 um, electoral votes. Okay, so that's that's how many have already signed on to it. Well, obviously, we need uh, 95 more, I'm sorry, 105 more electoral votes. The problem is that it seems as though we've sort of hit a brick wall with it because, you know, at this point, a lot of the red states that, so, so the state, each state legislature, of course, has to sign on to this. That's how it would work. So, for example, in California, and anybody who's interested can, can go on to the election code and, and take a look at this, it's written right into the code, and it says that we are, the state of California is a signatory to this compact. So the state legislatures have to enact this. Well, we have a lot of red states right now who, and, and you know, here's the thing. I, I've heard um, stories from those who, who work on this on the ground, and they say, I mean, I know this is anecdotal, and I don't like to use anecdotes a lot, but right. I've heard that, you know, they'll have legislators come up to the workers and say, yeah, you know, I'm really for this. I get it. It's fair. It's the way it should be. But I can't vote for it because we're a red state. And if we enact this, we will have great difficulty electing another Republican president. So they're not stupid. They know, you know, they know how the system works. So there, you know, we may have trouble getting the remaining votes to to put this into effect. Uh My feeling is this. I think that most people don't know about this. In fact, I know that that's true. Um, I mean, here in California, even though we've enacted it, I've yet to meet but a handful of Californians who know that we've enacted it. Now, something's wrong with that, if you ask me. So I know that, you know, most Americans are unaware of this national popular vote plan and that if we can just get the word out, if we can have concerted efforts in the states that we think will sign on, you know, have a campaign, maybe a ballot initiative, if, if your state has any, you know, an initiative process, right. and get these remaining votes so that we can enact this national popular vote plan. And then we don't have to have minority party rule again. 
Wow, that would be nice. And you know, I, I I have to say that you know I think during the the war in Vietnam, the best anti-war organizer was none other than Nixon himself. Well, right now we have this guy Trump, who is I think just woken us up. There's this new sense of we want to have a democracy, and this people want to be able to do something about us. So interesting. This this may be a real opportunity like we've never had before because you know people see this guy as completely unhinged. And right. we'd like to have a, a real democracy. Yeah, this has been fascinating. I've learned a lot. If, if listeners are so motivated, how can they arrange an outdated democracy presentation in their community? Wow, that would be great. They can go to the website, which is outdateddemocracy.com. They can email me. You can email me through the website, or you can email us at odd, that's O-D-D, at futuristfilms.com. You can also visit our Outdated Democracy Facebook page. We're on Twitter. You know, we're we're everywhere. Um, So that's that's the best way you can reach out, and we will be happy to talk to you about providing a presentation in your, for your, you know, your club, your organization, your group. We do house parties, uh, you know, whatever. You know, if you provide the venue, we'll provide the information and the discussion. Wow, really fascinating. And, uh, you know, we are not powerless. They want us to believe we're powerless, but darn it, we are not powerless. We can we're still not. do stuff. That's right. That's that's the great message here. We can do it. We can try to restore democracy. And once again, the website is? OutdatedDemocracy.com. OutdatedDemocracy.com. Couldn't be easier. Well, good luck, and uh, it's going to take a lot of people working together. Saving democracy is indeed a heavy lift, but I think people are motivated now as never before. Fascinating stuff. Lisa Elaine Scott, thanks so much for being with us and as a fan of democracy for the work that you're doing. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Bert. All right. Let's work on it together, and we can't let anybody turn us around. Well, don't you let nobody turn you around.